The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. What would your life be like if you became slower to judge and quicker to forgive? Hey, listeners, welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we are joined by John Haidt, who is an NYU professor uh, at Stern. He's also a moral and political psychologist, as well as having been incredibly active in the founding of the positive psychology movement and field. So we are so excited to have him here today. John has also authored three books, The Happiness Hypothesis, The Righteous Mind, and most recently, The Calling of the American Mind. Today, we're gonna be talking about positive psychology. We're going to be talking about the happiness hypothesis, which Jackie and I read, uh, and sharing some of the things that uh, John found in some of the work that he did to research and prepare this awesome book. So John, thanks so much for being here with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining. We're excited to dig in a little bit deeper, but we have a tradition on In the Arena. We love to do some rapid fire speed dating questions. So I will kick us off today if you're open to it. The first question we'd love to hear for you. Well, you are a New Yorker, right? You live in New York. What is your favorite neighborhood in the city? Oh, my favorite neighborhood is my neighborhood, which is the the West Village. The, the streets are so charming. Um, you know, it's uh, it's not like Midtown. It's not crowded, and it's just beautiful. I will say, John, I that was also my favorite neighborhood, and then I moved to the Upper West Side, so that's now my favorite neighborhood. But I think I think both are fantastic. As long as you're on the West Side, I'm happy. All right. So, who's an author you admire? I'm especially influenced by beautiful writing, writing that as you're consuming it, makes you sometimes stop to appreciate it. And so my, my, favorite, uh, my favorite author of fiction is Vladimir Nabokov, who I fell in love with in late high school or early college. Um, and my favorite author of nonfiction is Steven Pinker, uh, because the ideas are so good, but it's just, you know, especially in nonfiction, it's not so common to have just beautifully crafted writing. And Steve Pinker, all of his books um, just show him to be a superb writer. Wonderful. Okay. What is one positive habit that you want to bring into 2021? I would say of the habits that I cultivated in 2020, it would be the five-minute journal. There's this, it's this really good tool. um, It's called the five-minute journal. You just Google it. And it's a kind of a structured a structured way of of saying what do you uh, at the end of each well at the beginning of each day you say uh, what would make this a great day and what, and what are you grateful for you start off with what are you grateful for three three things you're grateful for and what would make this a great day and then at the end of the day you reflect back on your day and uh, you try to list three things that went well and, and why and so those are all really positive psychology exercises and this is just a it's a you know a physical paper book that makes it encourage you to go through it. That sounds wonderful. 
I need to try that five-minute journal. Great habit to bring in. I'm reading Atomic Habits right now by James Clear. Not sure if you've read it, but- No, I've heard about it. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, it's it's a great book, but it's gotten me really obsessed with habits. <laughs> so, Right, because you know we all make New Year's resolutions and don't stick to them generally. Exactly. Because those are, well, we'll get into this later, but those are made by the writer. But unless you change the elephant, it's not going to stick. Yeah. Great. So last one for you, John, if you could listen to one artist for the rest of your life, who would it be? I think I would have to say the Rolling Stones because there's so much of it and it is so varied, you know, from the early rhythm and blues stuff to, you know, much, uh, um, you know, harder, just really cool guitar. And, and it's, they've been my favorite band since I was a teenager. So I'll, I'll go with them. And it looks like they'll probably be making music another until they're in their 90s. So <laughs> yeah, I'll stick with them. Cool. I, I mean, I, I have a Rolling Stones t-shirt and wear it. And people are like, do you like them? And I'm like, I have to be honest. I don't listen to them that much. But the t-shirt was really cool. So I'm like, they were really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about you and your work, you know, the, the interesting thing we spoke about as we were deciding on reading this particular book is it was actually written in 2006 and you've published a few books since then. But when you and I spoke, you said, you know, I'm, I'm excited to revisit the content of this book. So we were curious to understand what's exciting about revisiting this content and maybe a little bit of what's changed or what's building upon it. Yeah, sure. So uh, this book is not about my own research. The The book grows out of the course I taught at the University of Virginia. Uh, I spent most of my career, 17 years, as a professor at UVA, and I taught Psych 101. And in order to convey, so I thought a lot about how do you, how do you take this field of psychology, which is so broad and has so much cool stuff in it, how do you make it come alive for, you know, for a room with 300 uh, 18 and 19 year olds? And so I would use a lot of metaphors and I would use a lot of quotations and I would find quotations from Shakespeare and Buddha and Jesus. So I had the idea that um, if I didn't get tenure, because that was my first job in, you know, in the academic world, if you don't get tenure, you have to leave and go usually to a lower ranked school. That if I don't get, didn't get tenure, I would just try to write this up as a popular psychology book and try to you know, just be an author and live off the earnings from that. And uh, fortunately, I did get tenure, but I decided to write the book anyway. And it was so much fun to write because I just love connections. I love the, there's a feeling when, um, when one pattern matches onto another pattern and you feel them go click in your head. It's my wife's favorite of my three books. Uh, it's the happiest. It's the most applicable to everybody's life. Uh, and then I wrote books that are somewhat darker. The, the The Righteous Mind is about why we're all torn apart in our righteous, disingenuous uh, you know, anger. And, and then The Coddling the American Mind is about some very bad trends that are happening to Gen Z. So uh, The Happiness Hypothesis is my firstborn and happiest of my three children. Hmm. What did you learn from writing this book? So I learned that the ancients, you know, East and West, the ancients were just terrible at physics and biology and chemistry. And there's nothing, nothing we can learn from them uh, in the natural science. Just throw it all away. But when it comes to psychology and how to live a good life and how to get along with people, they were incredibly wise. Now, it's not likely that they were smarter than us. In fact, if anything, our IQs are probably higher today because we have better nutrition and better health. But what I realized in writing the book is that the ancients said many, many things, most of which were probably stupid and wrong, 
But what got passed down through the generations was only the things that resonated with people. So when you read, you know, Confucius, the the Analects, or you read Buddha, the Dhammapada, or you read Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, these are just amazing works of wisdom written uh, in inspiring ways. And so it really has helped me be grounded you know we moderns and okay i'm technically a baby boomer i was born in 1963 but i don't i don't remember anything from the 60s so i don't really feel like i'm part of that generation and the two of you are millennials and you know with each generation they get less and less in touch with ancient wisdom because it's not taught as much in the schools and so i really learned that we are all just like little corks bobbing in a gigantic river of of rapids and uh, writing the book really helped me just feel not so disconnected. It just helped me feel connected to the whole human story. Mm, That's beautiful. John, you said you're sitting in this room trying to figure out how to get 18 and 19 year olds to love psychology. And I also, I took psychology in school, but I was, I was a business major. So coming back to psych was not on purpose for me. Uh, But what struck me as a 30 year old was positive psychology. And originally, I thought it was what I've heard people call happyology. <laughs> but what I started to understand was really that its its basis is about how humans thrive versus how humans suffer. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about about positive psychology for people who are just getting introduced to this thing. Yes. So it was really created by uh, by one man who had the inspiration for it, Martin Seligman, who's one of the best known psychologists alive today. He's famous for his early work on learned helplessness, uh, how when animals are put in a situation which nothing they do can save them from unpleasantness, you then put them in a situation where they can escape and they don't even bother trying. They've learned to be helpless. He's a clinical psychologist. He studied depression. And in 1998, I think it was, he was elected president of the American Psychological Association. And each president has a theme that for this one year, you know, my issue is going to be, you know, violence against children, or it's going to be racism or drug addiction or depression or crime. It's always something negative, uh, he noticed. And he also noticed that there was a rise. This is like, yeah, 1998. So there was uh, already had a bunch of pop psychology gurus on TV. And and so he really captured the the problem in this very simple image, I guess it is. Or He says, Psychology is great at bringing people from negative eight up to zero. So if you have a deficit or a problem, we've got all kinds of tools, but we don't have much to say to bring people from zero to positive eight. Or if you're already at positive three, you're not going to find much of, of use to you in psychology. So you're going to go to you know, Deepak Chopra or Dr. Phil or you know, some of the people who were very, very popular. And I'm not saying they're wrong because you know, what I learned is that a lot of pop psych is actually very consonant with what the ancients said. But the point is that scientific psychology had nothing to say to most people. And so he made that his theme and he put out a call for young researchers, or at least those who were within six years of their PhD, to come to Acumal, Mexico in the, in the Yucatan uh, for a week in which we would try to sketch out uh, this new field. And the, what we came up with was that it was going to have three pillars, that it's going to be the study of positive emotional states and experiences, so like happiness. So yes, happyology, if you like, like, you know, the scientific study of happiness had begun in the 80s by Ed Diener, but there wasn't a lot of it. So positive emotional experiences, positive personality traits, uh, strengths and virtues. You know, we have this 
DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which lists, you know, hundreds and hundreds of mental disorders, but there was no guide or no book to say what's right with people or what are their strengths. And then the third pillar was supposed to be positive institutions, uh, because we psychologists are really good at looking at individuals, but individuals are profoundly affected by the institutions that they flow through, families, schools, democracy versus autocracy, all sorts of things shape us. So those were the three pillars, and we've done a great job on the first two. We thought we'd meet up with positive sociology and positive anthropology, but they, those don't really exist. Here we are 20 years later, we still that still hasn't happened. So we're still a little weak on institutions. But actually, for this podcast, the workplace is actually one where we have made a lot of progress. There's a whole center. It's at, at the University of Michigan, at the Ross School of Business, um, is sort of the uh, a major place within business that they have developed, uh, they applied positive psychology to business. Uh, and also at the Positive Psychology Center at the University of Pennsylvania, where Seligman is based. So anyway, that was the origin of it. That's how it developed. And I would say in the last five or 10 years, it is getting increasingly popular uh, in business and business schools. I teach a, a course at Stern uh, called Work, Wisdom, and Happiness, uh, which was basically applying applying these ideas to the, you know, the, the, all the MBA students now are millennials pretty much, and the, they have a lot of uh, challenges and questions in common, and this course helps them. Mm -hmm. It's funny because, you know, as millennials, as you mentioned, Lee and I have been in the workforce for, you know, 10 plus years, and this feels so prevalent in the workforce. Like, you know, strengths, for example, I took Strengths Finder, which is, you know, through Gallup, probably, you know, seven years ago, my first job. And that's all about focusing on your strengths, not your weaknesses, which, you know, is seems a little bit aligned to what you were talking about. Right. And what did you come out as? What did Gallup tell you about yourself? Ooh, what was my top? Um, I've taken so many tests since then. And now the Enneagrams in my head, I mean, definitely Harmony was a big one. Like I, I, I'm forgetting my top one. So I'm, oh, an includer. I'm an includer. So I, love to make people feel comfortable in the space and bring people together, have that harmony. Something that I actually took away from Shane's Finder was it said in my write-up that I should be doing more focus groups. So coming in, asking people questions and pulling things out of people and getting people, you know, to feel that they can speak their mind about how they felt about something. So I went to my manager and she actually had me doing focus groups and I loved them. I would leave the room and feel so energized is the only way I can describe it. And from that point on, I was like, wow, this, this works, right? Really focusing on the strengths, not the weaknesses side, but beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels so prevalent in the workplace, which is very cool. Yes. I mean, our, our parents and, and grandparents, if they worked in offices, uh, there wasn't, you know, personal stuff you'd keep private. Uh, it was really just all, you know, you, you put a lot of your personal stuff uh, aside when you walk in the door. And with each generation, beginning with the baby boomers, but then especially millennials, there is much more the idea of bring your whole self to work, uh, which I have mixed feelings about because if I bring my whole self and you bring your whole self, especially in this very politically polarized time, part of my whole self hates part of your whole self. Mm -hmm. And so you can get all kinds of, but anyway, but no, that's a nice example of, how, of finding in positive psychology that uh, your best work life or really your best life is when you get to use your top strengths every day. And so, you know, for me, it's curiosity, love of learning, and I'm a college professor. And I, you know, all I do all, you know, I read, I learn, I write, and I'm not very good at the th things that you're good at. I'm not very good at gratitude or bringing people together. I'm 
you know, good at, you know, reading and discovering and doing experiments. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I've taken the VIA. And so that's what we've been working on working with lately. So I'm also love of learning, curiosity, uh, gratitude, appreciation of beauty. I forget my fifth spirituality. It's my fifth one. So okay. I'm doing the work that I work in learning and development. I'm constantly talking about positive psychology and spirituality. And you no, know, it sounds like you both found, you know, both not just with this podcast, but in your co- coaching work and other, it found like you both really have found uh, activities and careers that let you use your top strengths every day. And we should just say for listeners, uh, what, what Lee was referring to, if you go to viacharacter.org, that's V-I-A, C-H-A, you know, via character.org. That is the equivalent that positive psychology's creation uh, to be like the DSM, the list of, of mental disorders. This is the list of 24 strengths and virtues. So if you go to viacharacter.org, it's a free test. You can take it and there's a lot of materials there to help you apply what you learn. Yeah. I, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say in your book, you talk about authentichappiness.org, which I know brings you to the UPenn website, right? And there's right. a strengths test there as well that you can take. Yeah. Marty Seligman wrote his first book on this was called Authentic Happiness. And so he had a website that allowed you to take like 20 or 30 different surveys uh, related to happiness and positive psychology. And that now has been migrated over to the University of Pennsylvania servers. But if you go to authentichappiness.org, it should still come up. It, yeah, I think it defaults to the, the UPenn site. I wanted to talk um, about the happiness hypothesis. So that is the name of your book, right? Yes. But can we ask you, like, can you share with our listeners, what is your happiness hypothesis? I mean, I know that you put in the intro, so I think it's an okay question to ask, but are you willing to share a little bit about that? Oh, sure. Well, first I'll say that the original title of the book was 12 Great Truths, Insights into Mind and Heart from Ancient Cultures and Modern Psychology. And I got a contract with Basic Books to write the book. And then I was running out of time, I was behind schedule, so I changed the title to 10 Great Truths, insights into, you know, because, you know, and actually in part because I wanted to have a chapter on work, like what did the ancients have to say about work? And the answer is nothing. They had nothing interesting to say because there wasn't, there weren't careers back then. It was, you know, work was toil or you were aristocracy. So they, they didn't help us on, uh, you know, work, but I cut it back to 10 and I submitted the manuscript and then basic books. So for when you write a book, the title is actually up to the publisher because it's a marketing issue and a, they don't want an author to choose a stupid title, but they work with you. They're not going to give you a title that you hate. So they came back from their little meeting and they said, well, we think it should be called the happiness hypothesis because it's about happiness and it's scientific. So hypothesis. And I thought it's a little clunky, but I couldn't do better. But I didn't, I didn't love the title. And, and also I thought like, I don't know what the happiness hypothesis is. I just wrote this book about 10, 10 chapters about 10 ancient ideas, and some of them are not about happiness. But as I was revising the book, I realized actually there are three happiness hypotheses uh, in the book. And the first, the simple one is happiness comes from getting what you want. You want something, you work for it, you get it, you're happy. And there's some truth to it, but over and over again, we find that when you achieve your goals, it's the happiness is very short-lived. You're happy, but it's actually your brain is sort of like letting go. It's like, ah. Oh, now, you might celebrate, you might jump up and down, but usually you don't. Usually it kind of comes more gradually. Uh, but the happiness from achieving your goals is very short-lived because we evolved to not be content. We evolved to always be striving to do things that would make us more successful in a Darwinian sense, you know, attracting mates, leaving offspring, being successful in a career to bring resources, et cetera. 
So the second hypothesis, which is very widespread among the ancients, is that happiness comes from within. And in you know in ancient societies, they didn't even know what the weather was going to be tomorrow. They didn't know if a hurricane or an earthquake was going to come tomorrow. They had no way to predict anything. And they had very bad protection from you know violence and criminals. And so you find among both the Stoics and the Buddhists a real sense of stop trying to control the world, accept that the world's going to do what it's going to do. And you need to be the same in success and failure. And you need to, you know, happiness comes from within. So if you want to be happy, focus on containing your desires, reducing them, uh, stop being so attached to things. Uh, and, and there's a lot of wisdom in that. And that does feed into um, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a more modern version of this ancient wisdom. But what I came to see when writing the book is that we live in a very different world from the ancients. Like most of the people listening to this podcast have put money aside that they expect to spend in 50 years. Like we really do plan for the future. And it turns out research in positive psychology shows there are some things that you really should strive for. Uh, you know, good connectedness and relatedness, good relationships, and, a sen and some sense of control over your daily workflow. Whereas if you have a career in which just things get dumped on you and you have no ability to say no and you don't know what's going to happen, you have higher stress hormones all day long. It's, it's not as good for you. So by the end of the book, the conclusion I came to was uh, that happiness really comes from between. That is, uh, it comes from getting the right relationships between yourself and others, yourself and your work, and yourself and something larger than yourself. So when Sigmund Freud was asked, you know, what is, uh, we don't know the question because it, it wasn't in writing. It was, it was reported it, by somebody else. But it, he was asked something about like, what is mental health? And he said, Leben und Arbeiten, which means love and work. And he meant, if you, if you are able to love, broadly speaking, not just romantically, but if you are able to love and your relationships are good, and you're able to work and your work is productive, you have a sense, that's about the best people can do. And then I just added on, because of some of the content of the happiness hypothesis about group experiences, I just added on, uh, the third is be, uh, uh, getting the right relationship between yourself and something larger than yourself. It gives you a sense that your life has some meaning. It's not just about pleasant daily experiences. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. So come figure it out with me on the Hello Monday podcast. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives, like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or NYU professor Scott Galloway on choosing a career. I think the worst advice you can give a kid is follow your passion. 
or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday with me, Jesse Hempel, on the LinkedIn Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. I was really curious. I was just listening to something. I'm actually also reading Atomic Habits. And so I was listening to, I think, something that James Clear says in the book about the fact that you never have to ask people why they want to be happy. No one, no one has to talk about the why. And so can you just talk about that a little bit? Like everyone has a desire to be happy. Why is that? Like, wh- why are we always striving for that? Uh, well, first, it's not so clear that everyone has a desire to be happy or that that's primary. Westerners are, uh, we are in a society that is called weird. This is work by Joe Henrik, who has a new book, actually a great new book out called The Weirdest People in the World. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So, because, you know, we've been shaped by living in this modern, you know, free market, capitalist, democratic society with a lot of material wealth and high education, we're very individualistic. On a world scale, most people feel very bound in to their kin, to, you know, hierarchical relationships. So, if you look at Confucian culture, it's, you know, it's not quite as clear that happiness is the top goal. I mean, now you have Chinese restaurants, you know, called happy this or happy that, but, you know, but Confucian societies and, and Islamic societies and, you know, Orthodox Jewish society, I mean, human societies have not necessarily been focused on your individual happiness. Duty is more important. If you read the Odyssey and the Iliad, you know, they were more focused on honor than on happiness. So we first have to realize we are... You know, in the in the in the human story, where almost everybody died young and suffered from lots of diseases, we are just incredibly blessed to be able to expect relatively long lives with relatively little violence compared to the what humans have always experienced. So, I think the question would be, well, one interesting one would be, you know, in biblical times or in 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 peasant societies, did people? strive for happiness. And you can certainly say that, you know, they wanted things and they wanted to avoid other things. And they always wanted people to think well of them. Like reputation is a universe. We always care about a reputation. So we, as a species, we have certain needs and wants that we desire. And if we are excluded or disrespected, then yes, we, we're anxious or, or shamed. So I think you could talk about, you could talk about some global human traits that we want or pursue. But the idea that I want to be happy I think is a much more distinctly Western, modern Western trait. And I would alter it slightly to say, um, if you think about happiness as your goal, my goal is to be happy. That's hard and that sometimes is self-defeating because happiness comes to us when we do the things successfully that lead to success within our culture and, and for our species. And so, uh, you know, if you could just take a uh, take a pill and become happier, would you do it? Well, if you're prone to depression, we could get into that. You know, SSRIs work very well. But most people, what we want is we want to be successful at work and, uh, you know, and make money from our success. If you win the lottery and get a lot of money, it doesn't actually make you that happy. And a, there's a lot of terrible outcomes. But if you have gradual career success and that people respect you, uh, and you have material comfort because of your hard work, well, that actually is pretty satisfying. Mm-hmm. 
I, like I was mentioning, I study Kabbalah. And one of the things we talk about often is something that they call uh, bread of shame, which is really around the story that humans have an innate spiritual desire to earn what we have. Wow. Uh, so I always use that example of, you know, if you won the lottery, would you truly be full? And the answer is no. But if you were able to build something and have the same amount of money after you built it, you would experience the fullness. So it's not the outcome, it's truly the effort and the work that gives us that fulfillment. That's right. I think and I just think that shows two different principles. One is that it's the journey, not the destination. And so that's why if you achieve your goal of having a lot of money, that could be short-lived. But if the whole process was such that you can look back on it, and it's a much better story if there are some near disasters and some failures, but you rose, you know, so um, we also think in narrative terms. And, and, and if, our, if we have a good story to our lives, a good narrative arc, we're more satisfied. Uh, but I think what that also shows is the importance of what other people think of us. And if you win the lottery, suddenly everybody thinks you owe them something and people suck up to you and you can't trust people. So whereas if you, if you build a business or you rise within a company uh, and people respect you, that is, that is deeply pleasing. People feel satisfied when they have the esteem of their peers. Yeah. There's also an interesting aspect that you talk about called adversity hypothesis, where people need adversity or setbacks, um, perhaps even trauma, you say, to reach their highest levels of fulfillment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I was building on research on what's called post-traumatic growth. And that's the finding that now there are certainly, uh, yeah, I should, maybe I shouldn't have used the word trauma. That was, that word did, was not as charged back in 2005 as it, as it is now. And because uh, many people will end up with post-traumatic stress disorder. So, uh, you know, the, so the happiness hypothesis looks at 10 ancient ideas and one of them, it's chapter seven, page 135. So here's the long form of it. I'll just, I'll just read this because it's such a great quote from uh, Meng Tzu or Mencius, the Chinese philosopher. He says, when heaven is about to confer a great responsibility on any man, it will exercise his mind with suffering, subject his sinews and bones to hard work, expose his body to hunger, put him to poverty, place obstacles in the paths of his deeds so as to stimulate his mind, harden his nature, and improve wherever he is incompetent. So that's from the East. And from the West, we have the much pithier, shorter a quote from Nietzsche, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And so those are hypotheses. Those are statements about human flourishing from East and West, ancient modern times, or relatively modern times. And so I have a whole chapter looking at the research. What does the research say? Was Nietzsche right? Was Mencius right? Uh, and the answer is yes, with some qualifications. So we do grow from adversity generally. Ideally, of course, if the adversity is enormous, if the adversity is truly terrifying, then you can be scarred for life. And another thing I learned is that terrible adversity for young children does nothing good. Terrible adversity if you're you know, under 12, you don't really grow from. That really can leave scars, especially if it damages your attachment relationships. And terrible adversity when you're you know, over 40 also doesn't seem to be that helpful. Uh, it's especially for teenagers and young adults who are still developing their story about who they are and who are really unfurling or, or you know, uh, unfolding to the world. If you have no adversity, you're gonna end up probably weaker 
uh, and less competent than if you have adversity and you overcome it. And so there's all this research on post-traumatic growth that, you know, some people do have PTSD, but it's not that common. More typically, when something bad happens to people, if you talk to them a few months later, a year or two later, they say they've grown from it, they've learned things, they wouldn't want it to happen again, but it happened and you know, now I know what I'm able to face and I found out who my friends are uh, and I develop new skills. So we need some adversity. So there's, I just recently found there's this line in the in chapter seven of the happiness hypothesis where I talk about the, you know, the, weak, the weak version of the hypothesis here is that stress and setbacks can sometimes be helpful. That's kind of obviously true. But the strong version is that we have to have some pretty substantial stresses and challenges. Uh, we have to have some really substantial problems in order to reach our highest potential. And I don't know that that's true, but that's the hypothesis. And I say, if the strong version is valid, it has profound implications for how we should live our lives and structure our societies. It means we should take more chances and suffer more defeats. It means we might be dangerously over overprotecting our children, offering them lives of bland safety and too much counseling while depriving them of the critical incidents that would help them grow strong and to develop the most intense friendships. So I wrote that I wrote those words in 2005 when it was beginning to be clear that like we're really overprotecting kids and you know they have to, you know you could begin to buy like knee pads and helmets for your toddler so that they won't fall down while walking in your house like you know we thought like we need to bubble wrap them we need to protect them so I, I thought in 2005 like this could turn out really badly uh, we have the wrong psychology here and sure enough beginning in 2012 rates of depression anxiety self harm suicide all begin going up pretty rapidly. Uh, they were stable for the millennials. They were, you know, pretty stable. But once Gen Z comes into the data sets of teenagers, the rates of these all these bad mental uh, disorders begin rising. So there really is a mental health crisis for Gen Z, not so much for millennials. John, I mean, it, what's interesting is you mentioned post-traumatic growth, and and I know, you know, Jackie and I being millennials. I'd say we were probably somewhat coddled, but it sounds like not nearly as coddled. Uh, and we've both had, you know, Jackie and I have both had our fair share of adversity in, in our 20s and even into our 30s. And, you know, one of the things that struck me in your book was the power of story. When, it, when I think about it, then lining it up to post-traumatic growth, Jackie and I have both shared versions of our stories with people and with each other on this podcast. And it almost feels like the story is, is the whole is the thing like it allows us to make meaning of what happened even though at the time it was it was horrific like what's the what and i know you even mentioned jason baker which i love the writing to heal piece but what is that about so you know we have positive and negative experiences but why would a positive or negative experience stay with you and affect you years later primarily if you weave it into your story and it changes who you think you are or how you think the world works. So in this chapter, I, I cover the work of Jamie Pennebaker, who is a, a social psychologist at, at the University of Texas at Austin. And he found, he did these famous studies in the 80s, I think it was, where he would bring people and students into the lab and have them pick an event that was, I don't know if he said traumatic or painful or something, but write about some negative experience. And then the assignment was, Every day for five days, spend 15 or 20 minutes writing about it. And then he tracked them over the following uh, year or two, and he found that they were happier 
And I believe he found that they made fewer visits to the, to the health center. So it's this simple exercise seemed to have profound benefits. And the way he interpreted it, and I think it stood the test of time, is that it is the act of interpretation, of reinterpreting things, especially um, negative events. If you reinterpret them, you can put them away. You stop thinking about them, but you change um, you find meaning in it. You find silver linings. And uh, Laura King, uh, another psychologist, has found that even writing about positive experiences can have beneficial effects. So we are, we are storytelling creatures. The natural way that we learn, our species learns, is by telling stories. That's why you have these epic, you know, most cultures have these epic poems that describe heroes and gods and conflicts and, and, and people and have all kinds of life lessons. So we think in stories, we learn in stories. And if you, if you have some guidance in, in, in improving your own story and making sense of setbacks, it, in the long run, is good for you. So the book is called Opening Up. If you just Google uh, Opening Up Penny Baker, P-E-N-N-E-B-A-K-E-R. Great. And it sounds like the big takeaway is in order to start to mend ourselves and we have to start to write our own stories. Yes, that's right. And you can do it with a psychotherapist. You can do it in a journal by yourself. Yeah, if you read the Penny Baker book, Opening Up, it'll give you all kinds of suggestions. Or you can do it, well, I don't know if I'd recommend doing it on a podcast with your guests just because the maybe your thing should be a little more private. But I think Gen Z, it seems to be okay with like doing everything publicly. So. <laughs> Great takeaway. You also talk about a happiness formula. And we know so many people like to know, how do I do it? How do I become happy? You know, there's one thing in understanding, but then how do I put that into action? So would love to go through this, this happiness formula for our listeners. Um, I'll just say kind of what it is, but then would love to hear you kind of articulate it. So it's H is happiness equals S plus C plus V. So take it away. Share with us what each of those mean. Okay. So it's, it's not exactly a formula. It looks like a formula because it has math symbols in it, but it's really more of just a mnemonic to keep track of what really affects our happiness. And it was developed, I, uh, I forget the team, it's, I think Sonia Lubomirsky and two other psychologists, but I forget who, who was actually on it. But it's, it, it's, it's, uh, you can find it in Happiness Hypothesis or in, or in Authentic Happiness. So one of the biggest findings in psychology in the 1980s is that almost everything about us is partly heritable. So if you look at identical twins that were separated at birth, that's very rare nowadays, but it used to be done sometimes that they would separate kids and they'd be adopted separately. And the amazing finding in these behavior genetic studies was that identical twins reared apart tend to be somewhat similar on almost anything you can measure, whereas fraternal twins reared apart are not like each other. They're just just like regular siblings are not actually like each other. You know, we look... We look like our siblings physically a bit, but psychological traits are very, very different. And siblings are extremely different from each other, unless they're identical. And among the most heritable traits is your average level of happiness. So, you know, some people are just like, you know, like, uh, they, they wake up happy, they recover quickly from bad things, they're a joy to be with. It's, it really is a, a trait that seems to have a lot of genetic uh, predisposition to it. And so that's S. And for a while, people thought, oh, well, you know, I guess you can't really change your happiness because it's written in your genes. But that only accounts, it accounts for about half of the variance, um, uh, or maybe a little less, which is huge. But there is, there is still other variance. And so the finding is that you can actually change or increase your average daily happiness, H, uh, with two other terms. 
C is the conditions of your life, and V is voluntary activities that you can undertake. And so a lot of the conditions don't actually matter that much. You know, even whether you're healthy or sick, it turns out it doesn't matter that much because people adapt to all kinds of conditions and chronic health problems. If you're poor, you'll be less happy than if you're you know, upper middle class. But you know, beyond a comfortable uh, salary, happiness doesn't increase that much. So the conditions don't actually matter nearly as much as we think. But there are two that do consistently matter, and they are, what I mentioned before, the state of your relationships and the degree of control you have over your environment. So if you move out to take a new job someplace where you don't know anyone and it's just overwhelming and stressful and you get stuff dumped on you all day long, you're going to it doesn't mean you'll be depressed because you might be born really happy, but you will be below your set point. You will be living substantially below your set point. And if your set point is below average, that could really push you down into, into serious depression. So that's C, conditions. And then the, 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 the other big discovery is that there's some simple things you can do, some voluntary activities that have been shown to increase your happiness in studies at Seligman reports that, that were done through the website, I think. They find that doing these things improves mood as much as starting Prozac. And so it's things like counting your blessings each night, finding three things that, that went well or three people you're grateful to, and then, and then thinking about why. That sort of, again, it changes your story, your interpretation. Expressing gratitude, writing a gratitude letter to someone and, and giving it to them uh, has fairly long-lasting effects. It seems it's hard to believe, but it seems to uh, last for weeks. Meditation. What about random acts of kindness? Yes. So Sonia Lubomirsky, L-Y-U-B-O-M-I-R-S-K-Y. Sonia Lubomirsky uh, has been uh, the leading psychologist studying these experimental and I, I think she found that doing it every day actually didn't work because it's, it becomes a chore and it's hard. I forget what the magic number was, but it was like once or twice a week, uh, doing it once or twice a week, random acts of kindness did improve people's happiness. Now, that might also depend on what your strengths are. So if your strengths are kindness and more people-oriented, then this is really going to be using them. But you know, but if you're a little more sour-hearted or more you know, intellectual and rational or something, maybe it wouldn't help as much. I'm not sure. Yeah. And you, you talk about in your book, if you take that test that we talked about earlier and you identify what your top five strengths are and align those with the activities, the voluntary activities that you do in your life, you have a more of a chance of kind of increasing that score, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think so. I would predict that. I tried it as an experiment on my UVA students. I would always do a positive psych experiment with them. And Oh, yeah. We tried to see if working on your strengths actually did make you happier than working on your weaknesses. And the results didn't really support the hypothesis in that one first study. But I, I do still think that it's it's right that you, you enjoy working on your strengths a lot more. And so it's very valuable to know what they are and try to weave them into your life. John, you said, uh, I, I just want to throw something in because you shared that in the book, you would have your UVA students basically take on the task of making themselves a better person yes. by the end of what was it like the year? Can you just talk about that? I was, I was fascinated by that. So once I got involved with positive psychology, Marty Seligman said that teaching a course on it was the most fun he'd ever had. So I decided to try it. And I taught a course called Flourishing. And actually, I used the course to develop the book. Like I you know, talking, you know, talking with students for a semester, you know, 14 weeks. It's a really helpful way to develop your ideas is, is teaching a course on it. And what I did is I would uh, assign the students to pick a self-improvement project by the second week. 
uh, and then pick a method of improving themselves. So you can't just resolve to do it. You have to have a technique, and then uh, they had to have a measurement strategy. And I didn't give them a failing grade if they didn't improve themselves, but they had to show some psychological sophistication, some learning uh, to understand uh, the difficulties of self-change. So, I, you know, I went to UVA, and Thomas Jefferson put you know the three things he wanted to be remembered for on the on his tombstone. None of them were president of the USA. It was you know author of the Declaration of Independence, Virginia statutes on religious liberty, but. For me, it's apparently it's going to be the rider and the elephant metaphor, like psychiatrists, psychologists love it. So what it is, is the first chapter of the book is on the divided self and on how we have weakness of will and we want to do something, but we don't do it. I'll just read you the, one of the quotes here. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh so that ye cannot do the things ye would. And that's a great insight. What does that mean? Like, if I want to do something, why wouldn't I do it? But we all know this, you know, you try to get up in the morning, the alarm clock rings, you want to get up and start your day, but you just lie there. And, um, or you want to quit smoking or drinking, or you want to do more exercise, but you don't do it. And the explanation uh, that the ancients um, hit upon, and that is backed by a lot of modern research, is that the mind is divided into parts that sometimes conflict. And I wanted a metaphor to convey that, and the natural metaphor is a horse and rider. And many cultures have given us that metaphor. So Plato, in his dialogue, The Phaedrus, talks about the, a person is a char charioteer, which is the rational mind, struggling to control the two horses, which are the noble passions and the base or ugly passions. They're all part of us, but if rationality can get them under control, then you, ha you have a good life. But I wanted to convey the idea that reason is actually not that powerful. And this is my own research on moral judgment, uh, is that our gut feelings, our intuitions are so powerful, they drive everything. And our reasoning is largely post hoc nonsense that we, we create to cover our tracks. You can see this in politics. People on the other side seem to not be sincere. They engage in all this reasoning, which is just a post hoc justification of whatever their leader did or whatever. So the metaphor that I hit on was the mind is divided like a small rider on the back of a very large elephant. And the rider is our conscious reasoning. And the elephant is the other 99% of what goes on in our minds. So it's unconscious, automatic, intuitive processes, emotions, all sorts of things. And uh, so that's the metaphor that I developed, both for myself and my own life, and to explain the mistakes I was making, and to, um, to capture this general sense that the ancients had that the mind is divided. And that has proven to be a really helpful metaphor for a lot of people. So there's a, there's a much more successful book than mine called Switch by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. It's very widely read in business as it should be. Uh, and they called me up when they started writing it uh, and said, is it okay if we use your metaphor, the rider and the elephant? And I said, sure, take my metaphor, please. And they improved it. And, and they said, okay, you've got the rider and the elephant and self-change, you know, you can't just have the rider saying, okay, we're going to, you know, exercise every day. Self-change only really happens when you change the elephant, and so my book was a lot about how do you change the elephant and how do you get better relationship between the elephant and the rider. And what Chip and Dan Heath added was you can change the path. So if you want to improve behavior, you can you know you can have the you can lecture the rider or teach the rider different skills and maybe you can learn to control yourself better, or you can retrain the elephant gradually, like the way a behaviorist would or the way you'd train a dog. But especially if you're running a business or managing people, if you just make changes to the path 
that actually is the easy, generally speaking, that's how you get the most bang for your buck. So if you want to develop a habit of exercising, you know, if you if you want to run in the mornings, well, you know, uh, you know, put out your running clothes like right there where you can't miss them, and you know, get your make your have your coffee made the night before if that's what you need to get going. Like putting things there that make something easy, changing the path to a desired behavior, um, is the is the most powerful technique for then ultimately changing the elephant. If you get used to doing it after about 10 or 12 weeks, then you really have a habit that will stick. Um, although I'm curious, what have you learned from Atomic Habits? I haven't read the book yet. What does he say there? He says exactly what you just said in 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 so many words, and I haven't finished it yet, but there's a lot more. Um, it's that we need to change our identity and what we believe about ourselves and not the outcome. So, you know, Jackie and I have talked about New Year's resolutions a ton because I hate them, she loves them. And part of the reason I hate them is, most people fall off by February and then everyone all but 8% is done by, you know, Jan one when we rock back around and try to see how, we, how far we've gotten. And part of what I see that reflected back in atomic habits is that we have set an outcome or a goal, but we haven't changed the system that allows us to then change our identity. So we can say, for example, I put my shoes out every day because I am a runner. Ah, I'd like okay. to run this year. That would be great to lose some weight, right? It's really changing the I am statement and giving yourself the systems that force you into this new uh, identity. And so he sort of says, release the goal, grab onto the system because the system will get you to the goal by nature of designing it towards the goal. So very similar. Yeah, very nice. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah. And he talks about making it obvious. So creating cues that are going to make you to want to do that, understanding what your cravings are, and then getting the response that you desire from that. But I love the identity piece, right? Because to me, that speaks to the elephant, right? It's you're actually looking at the who you are and trying to get into that and tap into that to then drive your outcome versus the goal itself. That's right. Yeah. So identity could be just something the writer declares, but that would be a very shallow belief. It would take... So there's a lot of interesting work in social psychology showing that while we expect that our whatever your attitudes are will show up in your behavior, that actually often doesn't happen. Rather, if you uh, get people to do something, that actually often changes their attitudes. John, I'm curious of everything we've talked about today. If someone were to take one thing away from the work that you've put together in this book, what would be the most valuable thing for them? I think it would be to understand the weakness of the rider and the power of the elephant and the path. So if you want to be happier, uh, or if you want to change anything about yourself, don't take the direct route. Don't just resolve to change. That's like a New Year's resolution, which isn't going to work. But read, well, read the happiness hypothesis or read positive psychology um, or read atomic habits. Work with a life coach or read um, uh, what's this, uh, uh, Duhigg, The Power of Habit. That's a very good book. So I think the lesson would be that self-change, self-improvement is possible, but you have to be psychologically sophisticated about it. You can't just resolve to do it. And positive psychology and psychology more broadly can give you the tools to do it. And as we kind of come to a close, John, I'm curious, you know, just so we're curious today, we're in 2021, where has your work led you now? So, you know, my next book was The Righteous Mind, which is about my own research on moral judgment and political psychology and why left and right are divided and why some people become liberal, some become conservative and why we can't understand each other and we're so incredibly polarized. And, I, you know, I wrote that in 2010 to 2011. And my God, things are so much worse now. So I've been really focused on 
the political divide and political psychology. This has nothing to do with positive psychology. And uh, then I saw how this is affecting uh, universities and it's affecting Gen Z. And it wrote The Coddling the American Mind. Especially as we've gotten more polarized, I've actually come back to some of the ideas in the happiness hypothesis, um, especially chapter four. Um, chapter four, I think, might be the most important chapter in the book for, for today. Uh, and here, you know, we're recording this session, you know, a week or so after the events at the Capitol. By the time this comes out, God only knows what will have happened. But here are the, this is truth number four. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. So obviously that's Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. And, but you get the exact same idea from Buddha. It is easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults. One shows the faults of others like chaff winnowed in the wind, but one conceals one's own faults as a cunning gambler conceals his dice. So the ancients knew this about us. We're all self-righteous hypocrites. Uh, and I, in the chapter, I go through the psychological mechanisms that make us blind to our own faults, but really focused on why everyone else is wrong or is a hypocrite. And so, so I'm thinking a lot about that these days. Uh, and I'm not saying everybody's equally right, but I'm saying everybody's equally human. And people don't believe crazy stuff because they're bad people. The, you know, you, you look at the ride or the elephant in the path. I mean, people are in some ecos information ecosystem that has gone haywire that allows bizarre beliefs to flourish. We are all human. And part of being human is being flawed uh, and being blind and being hypocritical. And so... I used to be very angry about politics. I, you know, I was always on the left, and I, in my, when I was young, you know, Ronald Reagan was president, and I spent the whole '80s being mad at Republicans. And, you know, I never became a conservative, but doing this work made me much more understanding of all the different political viewpoints. And so now I have a bunch of projects to try to make things better, but I don't like blame people. I mean, you can blame individuals. There are individuals who have motives that are, you know, lead them to do something bad. But if it's a group, a large group of people. It's not because they're mentally ill. It's because they're human beings who've been exposed to certain ways of thinking and certain reward structures. So if we want to have a more peaceful and harmonious uh, and effective and efficient and fair society, uh, I think it's important for us to, well, be uh, slower to judge and quicker to forgive. Mm. So well said and such an unbelievable perspective. I know I took a lot from this part of the book, really leaving feeling like, I understood better why people see the world that they do and how everyone has a lens that they see their world. And when you just understand that, it is easier to not judge, right? It is easier to forgive. It is easier to understand. It is easier to see their side and not blame. And that is something we can all take away. All right. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us, John. There's um, there's so much that we've taken away Um touching the surface of this book. There's so much more in this book to read. So for those who are listening that are interested, um, The Happiness Hypothesis is the book that we were discussing today. Uh, you can also check out The Righteous Mind and The Coddling of the American Mind. So we so appreciate having you here, John. And um, you know, hopefully we will see you at some point again soon or and be talking about the uncoddling of the American mind is my, my hope. <laughs> yes, and the unpolarizing of the American polity, perhaps. Anyway, pleasure talking with you, Leah and Jackie, and good luck in your uh, coaching careers and aspirations to uh, help people find harmony and, uh, and meaning. 
Thank you, John. And for all of our listeners, uh, you know where to find us, but I'll share one more time. If you're just joining us, um, we'll be on, or we are on Spotify. We are also now on Audible. Uh, You'll find us also on Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. And we are so glad to have you joining us today and continuing on the journey. Have a great day, everyone. 